0: I'm Kelly O'Hara. You're listening to Pod Clubhouse. Pod Clubhouse. Hello. We're back very early. I thought we were meeting at Mrs. Morris's Bazaar. The bazaar is over, my dear. Closed and finished. What? I thought it was the last three days. So it was. But a man called George Russell decided otherwise. What was he like? Well, yesterday I would have said he was nobody. But today, I'm obliged to concede that he is someone to be reckoned with. And befriended? Oh, no. Not yet, at any rate. But we will hear of him again.
1: Welcome to New Money, Old Rules, the Gilded Age podcast. This is Caroline. And
2: this is Mike. Tonight, we're discussing episode two of The Gilded Age, which was titled Money Isn't Everything. Well, we think it was titled Money Isn't Everything. It depends on where you look on the internet. The screeners we're watching actually don't have episode titles in them. This episode was written by Julian Fellows. And like last week, it was
1: directed by Michael Engler. Just a reminder, you guys, that we assume that you've watched the episode. So we're not going to go scene by scene to recap the episode. But if you haven't, please stop now because we don't want to spoil you you go watch the episode and come on back
2: we'd love to invite you over to our Facebook group which you can find at the Gilded Age fan group parentheses HBO series talk about the episodes deep dive into New York's history we'll be putting up some nice historical stuff
1: get a chance to hobnob with some of the other watchers
2: throw on your tux tighten that corset
1: (laughs) (laughs) I like how you say corset I always say corset I wonder if that's just like a totally corset northern southern thing I don't know I don't know it's a very fancy corset I gotta
2: tell you because we had a whole conversation I don't remember if it made it into last week's episode,
1: valet or valet. Yes. it's
2: in. I started watching Downton Abbey again.
1: Oh no! And they said valet the whole time. And they're
2: definitely saying valet, and that's why I had valet in my head. I know. So, so I'm I'm sticking with valet because now it's definitely in my brain. Because yeah, I but we're watching. in
1: America, and these people don't speak with like a British accent or anything. So I'm just uh, feeling like, is it valet? I don't know.
2: Actually, have a little Downton Abbey connection here that what? we we have to get Julian Fellows on the show now because it's <laughs> the most minor of things, but it, it excited me so so much. In in the very first episode of Downton Abbey, almost at the very front of the episode, the Lord, Lord Grantham, who's like the head of the manor, the head of Downton Abbey, we learn that he's getting a new valet uh, who is coming to start work at Downton. We learn that the reason he's having to come here is because Lord Grantham's former valet has left his service and he's never seen. He is an unseen character. He's only mentioned in this first episode. I think he's got one more mention later in the first season and that's it. His name was Mr. Watson. <gasps> ah. dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. The Russells, who we know are influenced by Europe
1: and would likely have brought things over from europe their valet who
2: maybe has a checkered past is named bum 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 mr watson
1: Whoa. George that's Russell's
2: valet is named Mr. Watson in this show. Now this show takes place in 1882. Downton Abbey takes place in nineteen twelve, so it actually takes place in the future. But who's to say that that maybe his past that is haunting him here, maybe he runs to England and oh. maybe maybe it catches up with him is why he, that he has to leave Lord Grantham's service. I think there is a valid connection between the
1: Watsons. Well, and as we know, that a lot of times when it comes to the serving class that it's can be, like, generational. So maybe it's, like, his father or his son or something, too.
2: Yeah, you don't know. Right. It could be generational, very much so. Because he's an unseen character, maybe Mr. Watson was terribly old in Down Abbey, because it would be mm. about a 40-year difference, because that show starts in 1912. Actually starts the day the Titanic sinks is, like, the first episode. Fascinated by it. Maybe okay. Julian Fellows just likes valets named Watson. <laughs> it's elementary, dear Watson. I don't know. Oh, I, love- <laughs> I don't know.
1: Gotta get to this episode. We might have to make a drinking game for every time you say valet, too, in this episode. So go ahead and drink, you guys, every time Mike says valet.
2: Guys, please don't drive.
1: <laughs> <laughs> or ride in a horse and buggy. Uh, None of the above.
2: Uh, or take, you know, a brand new train that George Russell may be building in New York. Who knows? A new train station. I, For whatever reason, I really took notice of the opening credits They are fantastic. It felt to me like Game of Thrones and Downton Abbey had a baby. And that baby's opening credits were Gilded Age. I was into them. I don't watch a lot of credits. I tend to skip through them. I was fascinated by them. The pacing, the image shots.
1: It did catch my attention because I didn't see them in the first episode. So the second one, I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We've got some opening credits up in here. I was very interested. And I agree with you. It was very well done. And something that I will leave on, I won't skip ahead. I want to see what they're doing.
2: Let's talk about the major episodes episode theme, because it comes up in a bunch of different ways, and I think applies to a lot of what's happening here, is this idea of money isn't everything. It's said by Ada, and it's actually talking about love and that maybe we should marry for love and because money isn't everything, using her sister and her troubled marriage as an example. And then it's said by Miss Morris, Anne Morris, Insofar as a reason to not invite Mrs. Russell, even though she has money, Marion says she's got more money uh, than all of them in the bizarre lunch combined, which is significant. The response by Anne Morris is money isn't everything, as if she because she's missing the status of society. Great use of words and obviously very clever writing on Julian Fellows's part. What's your take on that? What's your take on the idea of money isn't everything?
1: I definitely think that marrying for money is a bad idea if it's, it's if it's devoid of all other things, love and security and trust and all those things need to be in place. And then the money is nice. When people say things like money doesn't buy happiness, I agree you can't buy happiness, but it certainly does buy peace of mind sometimes. And that can bring happiness. Money definitely isn't everything. I will agree with that blanket statement.
3: Marion has no income, and her birth, thanks to her mother, is not impeccable. In short, without a decent marriage, she will be lost. But he's a lawyer. if you ask me, he's a shyster, with neither background nor fortune. It's obvious, he sees her as a ticket out of Doylestown.
4: But if they like each other, marrying for money is not always a guarantee of happiness, Agnes.
3: I don't wish her to marry for money. Only to marry for security, support and god willing affection. Would you deny her that?
2: So we have in the United States the SSA, which is which most people think stands for the Social Security Administration. What if it actually in fact stands for support, security, and God willing affection?
1: Whoa, that's asking a lot of That's asking a
2: lot from the people. I don't know if you've ever had to stand in line at the old Social Security office, but.
1: You don't get a lot of affection, that's for not, sure. Not
2: a lot of affection. And <laughs> I don't know how much support they're getting in you either, but. uh <laughs> I see what Agnes is saying here, and Agnes definitely holds herself out as the sacrificial lamb. We had it in the first episode. We had it in this episode where Ada makes a comment where she says, you married your husband, Mr. Van Ryn, to save yourself, and Agnes very quickly says to save both of us. Agnes very much did not marry for security or affection, maybe security, definitely for support. Uh, but she married for money. She did not marry for love or affection in any kind of way. It, does that make her statement here more believable or less believable? in what she's trying to sell to Ada because they're very devil, angel and devil, right? You have Ada kind of encouraging love for Marion everywhere over everything else and Agnes has got her eye on the ball saying, no, no. You're not getting any of the Van Ryan inheritance. That's all going to Oscar. So Marion has to marry someone who's got money or else she'll be lost is, is her word. Is it somewhere? It's probably somewhere in the middle, but what's your take on, on the two sisters here?
1: I'm going to put push- back on devil and angel and say more like maybe practical versus more optimistic or hopeful? Because, you know, we talked about this in 1883, and this is going to come up a ton here. You know, women didn't have a lot of opportunity and they are reliant on men in their lives, whether it's their father or it's their husband, to be able to afford them any type of lifestyle. You know, the reason why we're doing these constant charities for widows and orphans is because women alone can't do everything that needs to be done in order to take care of their family. This is a whole thing. I mean, they couldn't open bank accounts. They can't hold jobs in the way that that men can. They can't do a lot of things that men can do. They can't get credit and loans and all those things during this time. So I don't blame women for having to do what they had to do in order to take care of themselves and their kids. I don't look at it in the same way as like now we say things like gold digger and things like that because – You know, women do have more opportunities and we are able to take care of ourselves and be independent of our fathers and husbands. But back then, you truly weren't. It was more, I mean, it was common sense to find someone who could take care of you and your family.
2: Let's drill down into the the discussion from that clip. As relates to Mr. Rakes, the lawyer, Tom Rakes. He's the lawyer we meet in the very beginning of episode one, who is the one breaking the news to Marion that she has 30 dollars to her name. And to the point where he's a lawyer waiving his fees. That is how poor she is. And, you know, he shows up in this episode and seemingly is moving to New York for her. Uh, it, It seems because there's not really any other kind of good reason. Is your feel what's your feeling on Mr. Rakes and appearing kind of unexpectedly in this episode uh and and seems like it's going to be an ongoing thing does ada have the right of it does it seem like love blooming and it's chivalrous that he would make this move or is agnes right and he's a shyster and she's a ticket out of doylestown which is something i will say i had in my notes before agnes said it
1: oh Their interaction on the train platform before Marion left, when he was asking her if it would be okay to write to her, and when she's like, you know, kind of pushing back and he's like, oh, no, 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 like for business, right then I was like, what's your angle, sir? I'm already taking note of you. Do you actually like her? Or are you realizing that, yeah, she is getting up and out of this little place and she is going to the big city?
2: he's the one who says to her, oh, let me check my notes. Oh, you have very wealthy aunts. Uh, your, uh, your father was a deadbeat, but uh, let me check my notes. Oh, yeah, you're actually loaded. You're a Van Ryan? Oh, I have that in my research here. Mm-hmm. And it's on Marion to say, no, 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 my father and them didn't get along and I have no relationship with them. Rakes is like,
5: well, consider
2: it. You've got 30 days before you become little orphan Annie. Go you know." Think about it. Maybe I'll see you down in New York.
1: (laughs) Well, you're adding that portion. For me, I thought he was really looking out for her. I mean, it it was her best option. Mm, True. Regardless of how he feels about her, her very best advice from her lawyer is, even though you don't have a relationship with these family members, they are probably the most stable choice you have right now.
2: I agree with you until he shows up.
1: I know. Days I'm,
2: later. I'm... Like, to be fair, it's weeks later. But still, he shows up.
1: My bones are so quiet on this. And you know they're not normally. Usually they're like screeching like one way or another. Can I whether he's you? a good guy or bad guy.
2: I know you. Can I tell you why your bones are quiet on this? Uh-oh, go ahead. Because Mr. Rake says something in this episode that I think your bones may messing like. my
1: bones up? Oh, they... no. Okay, go ahead.
4: I wish I understood what brings you to New York. Simple. I want to be here. And that's enough of a reason? Of course it is. It's always a reason when you
5: want something enough. When I see what I really want. I take it if I can.
4: I suspect that's something you should try to control if you don't intend to spend time in a police cell. (laughs) So, when did you decide to come to New York?
3: It's always been a dream of mine. But it's become real comparatively recently. I see. I wish I could convince you that I mean to be your friend.
1: Mm, okay, that's an awful lot of breadcrumbs for my bones. <laughs> yes,
2: but you do like decisive people, though. And I think your bones may be a little off kilter because... I, you like what a guy says. I see what I want, and I'm going to go do what I can to take it.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's totally my jam. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I can't figure out when—I when, guess I don't get exactly why Marion is being so standoffish with him. If it was authentic vibes he was sending off, I'm not sure of their dynamic yet. Because she definitely is keeping him, you know, at arm's length.
2: Well, I think she's got little hearts in her eyes for Larry. You don't say I mean, I think I think she's fresh.
1: I mean, she was quick on the train platform to say, you can't be like socially calling upon me. Um, That wouldn't be appropriate. So I don't have my arms around Marion yet. I, I had asked you. I posed the question to our listeners, too. If she and Peggy were left alone in the woods, Peggy would have a thousand things to talk about what would Marion talk about? What is she like? What does she think about? What is her actual personality? She so far has played this role of asking a lot of questions and being sort of our chance to see different parts of society and that kind of thing. But I don't have my arms on her enough to even understand what she knows about love, what if she's interested in being married. I don't know.
2: Other things in Mr. Rakes's favor. He does without much hesitation and, and with sincere curiosity takes on the case of peggy and peggy's mystery cause that we don't know anything about yet and and doesn't charge for it which again guys i'm a lawyer (laughs) it's hard not to charge for the things that we do in the legal capacity yes yes we, we all have to do pro bono hours it's actually part of our like law license but this guy we've only seen him wave. His legal fees. He actually hasn't charged for anything we've seen him do as a lawyer yet on the show, which maybe is a little suspicious, but if you – but it depends on your personality, I guess. If your point of view is looking for the best of a person, I think that is something in his favor. He takes on – he goes to meet – uh, you know, Peggy and Marion. But again, I think he's also trying to woo Marion. I'll tell you mm-hmm. what really did work for me and something that I did like that he did in this episode is the whole guidebook thing about the Bethesda fountain and that he has the guidebook with him and hands it to her when he goes off to talk with Peggy. I like that. I like it's a good move. Maybe it was totally calculated. It worked for me, though.
1: What do you read into that? What's your because I can tell you're you are reading something into it. What do you see that little exchange as?
2: He wanted to be he wanted to come off as being knowledgeable that he had all of this information about the Bethesda fountain, the statue in the middle. Oh, it's Angel of the Waters. It's a beautiful. If you've ever been to Central Park, it's a beautiful fountain. It's a beautiful statue. It's very mesmerizing. There's always a ton of people around there. When she kind of calls him on it without very much prompting, he admits that he studied up on it to impress her. I think I was all part of the wooing. You know, he's like, look, I bought a guidebook and I learned this piece of information because we were going to meet here. Like, okay. I knew this I knew this thing about New York City. I, you know, I want to impress you. And then here I'm going to give you the guidebook because I'm going to go take your friend for a while and you need something to occupy your time.
1: But I think that's a good mechanism to get information into Marion's hands, too. So from just like the writing standpoint, if you just look at at his role, he provides this chance for Peggy to have, you know, whatever We don't know her storyline. It's a total mystery about what she needs a lawyer for. So that's great. But then also by him handing her that guidebook, Marian has a lot more autonomy now from the ants because she has the ability to read the maps and look and see where things are and learn about things on her own. That is like a really important step forward for her in terms of, again, just being a little more independent, you know, not asking them every question. So there's something there that I think that he's providing this outside knowledge that she can't get from the ants.
2: Well, I think you said it last week. She is she is an empty vessel.
1: We have to have information flowing to her outside of the ants. Like having Peggy is huge. Having the lawyer is huge because they're going to be like questioning. and, And Oscar really provides the same thing, too. Asking these other questions from the outside and providing this insight. When you said that she's she doesn't have much knowledge of the city, she doesn't have much knowledge of the world she doesn't seem to know what's going on she didn't even know what's going on in her own family like she doesn't know what's going on
2: right I, as she says to it's to oscar to larry i think last week she's like it's my first trip really anywhere not only my first trip to new york i've just never been outside of Doylestown."
1: do you want the two of them to get together or do you want her to have like a lot more of a chance to go out there and see what's going on in the world
2: no i don't want them together i, I feel like that is just taking the first door And Mm. I'm always interested in what doors five and six look like. Um, I'm actually very interested to see her and Larry together because I think they're both kind of bland. Uh, I don't know if bland is the right word. They're both very. Oh,
1: I get what you're saying. There's something vanilla about them.
2: Yes, they're, they're both very vanilla. So I kind of want to see them explore the world together and become less vanilla, you know, get into maybe some vanilla with like fudge swirl or something.
1: Have some adventures and have some experiences. I think totally makes sense. I
2: want, I want to see Marion up in Newport, you know, playing yeah. croquet and, and shit like, you know, go smack a, a, a shuttlecock around plains of badminton.
1: You know, when they said that they were going to play Cinch, I was like, ooh, because that's totally my family plays Cinch. Like everyone does.
2: I'm embarrassed to say I had to look up what Cinch was, I had never heard of it before.
1: Well, that's okay. But I liked it because they're from Pennsylvania. That whole part is part of my family. And then so then for the other side to bring in Cinch, that is a very popular game there. All these little tiny pieces are coming together for me.
2: They say this, I think, in the show, but just to drive it home again, uh, we'll have this information. We'll have a picture up of the the statue and a little information about it on the Facebook page. But just so you know, Emma Stebbins did, in fact, uh, design the fountain in 1868. It was dedicated in 1873, which is why he says it's been there for a about 10 years. At that point, Stebbins became the first woman to receive a commission of a major work of art in the city of New York. So that fountain is actually extremely important for women and artists.
1: There's going to be a big push here, I think, to show women and how they help each other and what their what their roles are in society. I 100% see that as a guiding force throughout this entire series.
2: Also good to know if, you're, if you guys are keeping a log of etiquette, waiving your legal fees gets you tea in a fancy lady's oh. uh living room
1: <laughs> there you go yeah, for it's all bartering. the lawyers
2: for all the lawyers out there if you're looking how to drum up uh business or at least get free beverages waive your legal fees it's going to get you tea high, high tea so. nice
1: high tea comes with snacks so really it's like a meal
2: yeah are the snacks so great though i feel like there's a lot of that's lettuce teeny tiny i feel like there's a lot of watercress lettuce of
1: cucumber cucumber that's
2: right and cucumber. And, and we're it dill like
1: definitely dill yes yeah
2: and, and not bread that I would necessarily pick in the, in the, at the bakery I don't know I, I'm not there They're for the funny. snacks I'm there for I'm there for the downstairs where they when they said the peggy when they said the peggy last week you drink coffee I was like hell yeah drink coffee <laughs> nice tea nonsense that that that's mr watson drinking his high tea over there
1: it was over in 1883 that we learned that women don't drink coffee mm, that's not yeah. that that's that that's like kind of on the inappropriate slash rude side of town so yeah we do know that women don't drink coffee or high society women don't drink coffee yeah,
2: for very much so i mean it was it was scandalous to see faith hill drinking coffee over on 1883 and if you guys check out that podcast You'll see me also saying that coffee is good after every kind of event, not just after a long <laughs> night of writing. Anyway, uh, let's talk about money isn't everything in the other way it was used in this episode. Let's head over to the Morris household where we are planning a fancy, bizarre charity for uh, orphans of war and women uh, widow
4: orphans. Have you asked Mrs. Russell? We won't go
0: down that route again. No.
4: I don't see why not. I like her.
0: Careful, my dear, or I'll report you to Aunt Agnes.
4: But why keep her out? She can give more to the cause than the rest of us put together. She's welcome to make a donation. We're dining with her soon, and I'll try to inspire her with our work. You're having dinner with Mrs. Russell at her house? Her husband has something he wants to talk about with Mr. Morris. Do
5: I hear my name taken in vain?
4: You're not to disturb our meeting.
5: I wonder, will you include Mrs. Russell among your stallholders?
4: Apparently not. We still want her check, though. We just mean to insult her first.
5: Her husband won't take kindly to the snub.
4: This bazaar is an aid of children. We need everything to be as pure as the driven snow.
5: And so you mean to tangle with the man who owned most of the railroads in this country?
4: Money isn't everything. It is when you haven't got it
2: some really good lines in there from marion uh i really liked we'll take her check but we have to insult her first
1: i know when she that was so blunt <laughs> that's I what marion's
2: like, great <laughs> for marion is a blunt fucking object she is always super blunt and i love it i love her blunt <laughs> comments
1: well and also i want to point out that bouncy background music that we mm-hmm. talked about that it kept the conversation lighter than it actually was and there's something to that that i think it really matters. I'm going to pay attention to it because there's something about that, like, boom, 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 boom. That's like, it's not as bad as it seems.
2: (laughs) Right. But it is, though. It's insidious, right? I mean, that's, I mean, the idea of talking about money isn't everything. It's this double layer meaning. It's it's not, it's taking her check but not inviting her to participate in the thing, you know, which we heard last week, the comment, those women, right? That was Aurora Fain who says that in last week's episode. She's like, those women always are willing to give money because they know it's the only way they can ever hope to get into our society circles set aside for a minute the idea of still snubbing bertha and i and it's important to note this is Anne morris leading this snub charge not aurora fane this week it's Anne leading the charge of snubbing bertha patrick morris the alderman who we only heard about last week we meet played by michael gill What's your take on him in this episode? And this this scene in particular, this together with his opening scene, which I'll play in a second, what was your overall impression about Patrick in this episode?
1: Maybe play the clip first.
2: All right, well, let's play a clip. This is from earlier in the episode. This is where Patrick is musing about why he would have been uh, included in, as he says, Bertha's largesse when the uh, Morrises are invited to the Russells for
5: dinner at George's urging. George Russell is a force in this city, whatever you like to pretend
4: but who else would be there? We could be dining with anyone.
5: Won't there just be the four of us?
4: Can't you meet him at his office? It's
5: not what he wants, is it?
4: But how would I explain to people?
5: Why not say you wanted to invite her onto the board of your bazaar?
4: I don't think so. Aurora feigns the chairwoman again, and they had a falling out last time.
5: You are joint chairwomen; The choice is yours as much as hers.
4: I'm not sure it's ever successful, trying to mix different types.
5: You won't say as much, I hope.
4: Of course not. And I'll invite her to come and support us on the day. She can't be offended at that. Can't she? You won't accept if Mr. Russell makes you an offer.
5: I shouldn't think so. But I'd like to know what I'm turning down.
4: And when Mrs. Astor hears we've gone to their house, what then?
5: Mrs. Astor knows how the world works.
2: You have to note how she's blaming Aurora Fane for keeping her, for keeping inviting Bertha off of the board. She's invoking Mrs. Astor. What would she think? This idea, the shame of going to the Russell's house. What would I tell people about why we were there even for dinner? All of these, all of these deflections that she's throwing up. And at the end of the episode, guys, Mrs. Astor, in fact, does know how the world works. And I think Patrick is proven right there. I like this whole scene because it set up this idea, Caroline, that business does not mesh with high society rules. They are, in fact, at odds with each other. And I think that they're at odds with each other this entire episode.
1: I don't know if I agree with that. I think that that they it's kind of more like the the business portion does make their world go round he's like begging them to just make the social portions easier because they have to attend these things
2: he she continues to push back against him though that's what i'm saying that they're at loggerheads he is getting incre he gets increasingly angry at his wife it's like three times they have a conversation i mean i don't have the clip but he says aurora never would have protested not using the ballroom <laughs> (laughs) after the armory fell through. He finally calls her on her bullshit, which I have a whole theory on anyway. But yeah, I mean, I think they are at loggerheads because they're sticking, the women are sticking so fastly to Mrs. Astor and her rules and this perceived idea that they have to live by them.
1: But let's compare this couple and this conversation to last week's with George and Bertha and how much praise we heaped on George for not downplaying the importance of what was going on on in the social circles and that it is, in fact, at the social dinner where business deals are made. He understands that. And now here we are having Patrick saying, it doesn't matter, just invite her, who cares, blah, 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 blah. Trying to act like that's not how it goes down. Like, even though he's saying it, he's saying business is more important, like cut it out. George gets it done in a different way. I'm not going to downplay the social part. You be like a fierce animal. Get that, get this all done because you're right. This is how it goes. So I'm saying it's not at odds Patrick's making it at odds but i don't think it actually is
2: here's the thing george knows his wife is on the outside looking in
1: mm-hmm.
2: it's a very different position than what patrick and ann are they're on the inside and their only thing is and ann's only thing is to stay on the inside she doesn't want to wake up one morning and find that they moved her bunk out into the yard
1: but then how can patrick say it's, not, it's like just knock it off don't worry about it just eat with whoever they, everybody's kind of agreeing on how important it is but patrick's not really
2: Well, remember, George, George doesn't understand either, though. He keeps saying, I have more money than God and all of these people combined. I don't understand why you're putting this through this. He is being supportive of his wife because he wants his wife to be strong and forceful and get if she wants to be in this society circle for whatever reason, then that's what he wants for her. But it's not because he wants her to be in the society circle. He just wants her to be happy. And if this is the thing that she decides that she needs to be happy, then he wants her to be a goddamn lion and go out there, you know, and, and, and rip throats.
1: We're going to have to agree to disagree because he is the one who wants to call the dinner and have Patrick come over to the house and have this conversation. This is driven by business. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But
2: that's how Patrick, if Patrick is being driven by business also and and, and, and and her actions, I don't think he has a problem with the society's rules. I don't think he I, He says, Mrs. Astor understands how the world works. I think he's bending to the fact that business is done at these things I think he is specifically taking to his wife taking his wife to task that she is interfering with his business mm-hmm. within the rules that the things that he's asking her to do wouldn't not would not offend her society standing that she has she not Aurora it's she who has it seems the personal snit with uh, with Bertha and is the one who's actually offended, which, which if you go and then replay last week's episode where Aurora and Anne meet Bertha and Gladys for the first time, it's an interesting twist, whereas Aurora seems very motivated by just fear of her aunt above all else. And has drank the Kool-Aid. She very much buys into these. I am better than you because I am on the inside and you are on the outside.
1: Like you said, the 400 are those who can fit in her ballroom, her ballroom. And they're the 400 who rule the business as well. They're hand in hand they're
2: no longer the ones who rule the business. They're yeah, the ones they who
1: were. Yes, we're going through a transition, but society and business hand in hand. You're right. Russell's are trying to bust into this and that's where we're getting these at odds situation. Right.
2: I, I mean, the clip I love the fact that fact the clip that he says George Russell is a force in the city, whether you want to admit it or not. Very yes. practical. I really liked Patrick in this episode. Uh, I liked his whole thing in the same way that I liked George. I like sensible businessmen who are just it is what it is. You may think it is this, but we are not as rich as the Russells, and this guy can make us very rich, or conversely
1: sink us can sink us and (laughs) will
2: i you know the you know the story with thornburn is already circulating this idea that he's going to bankrupt this sandusky railroad owner just because because he wants to make a point that for sure has reached the aldermen you know who now have to deal with this 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 lion
1: we are getting into the section of time when the the phrase it's business not personal Mm. makes sense and you can start injecting that but before this time No, it was, you know, business is personal and it's all relationships and it's all about who you hang out with. And now, yeah, this is, I mean, Patrick is basically begging this is business, not personal. I can't go meet at his office. You got to do what he says when it comes to how we're going to handle the business deal. Like, please stop making this personal and like make the business side work because we have our way of doing things and y'all have your way of doing things and you're trying to ask us to bend the rules. Women have their own unwritten rules in this society too. So,
2: let's talk about the dinner at the russell's house <laughs> and makes that comment about she, uh, she 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 makes the passing comment about how decorated or over decorated the house is from because they're talking about uh stanford White and the building of the house the eyes the wide eye look that patrick gives his wife made me laugh i watched it like three times <laughs> it was so fun he was so disturbed that his wife would be saying these things out loud I think business aside, just you're you act like a fucking human. My God. Like, you're talking to the person who owns the house. It's yes. not like you're talking about her behind her back. Good Lord.
1: I, the exchange of barbs back and forth was, like, killing me. Because then Bertha comes back with the Morris is a common name. I mean, that was her, like, middle finger back. And I was like, yeah, because there's going to be that they this is a pecking order situation you have to have someone's got to fall to the bottom of the pecking order in order for you to go up it so there's got to be something that happens here and patrick oh my god he's the pleading eyes oh, so oh please don't sink my business deal because you're acting up over here
2: so so here's the joke so richard morris hunt was really a real person he was an american architect of the 19th century eminent figure in the history of american architect architecture helped shape new york city with his designs for the 1902 entrance Facade of the Great Hall of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. He designed the pedestal to the Statue of Liberty. He designed many of the Fifth Avenue mansions, most of which have been destroyed at this point. Uh, He also built the Biltmore Estate, which is America's largest private house near Asheville, North Carolina. He also built a lot of the Newport, Rhode Island houses, which we saw a little bit at Mammy Fish last week. He was the go to guy for all of the high society people at this time to be using. So it was. It was just, again, it was a good use of the show using a real character from history incorporating into it. I thought it was interesting that then when the conversation shifted to the French chef – then Anne Morris takes the other tack that it's too ostentatious, it's too much of of a luxury to have a French chef, which seemed like a shifting gears kind of thing. But again, money isn't everything, right? Because she doesn't have the money that the Russells have, so she has to be able to make comments that are not "my money makes me better than you."
1: Yeah, I definitely felt like when Patrick was like, "But it tastes, everything taste so delicious?" Like he kept trying to like like downplay her comments, like cut it out.
2: Right. As if she was going to be like, I'd rather go to McDonald's and have this French food, you know? <laughs>
1: I, You know, well, side note, I love the French chef. I think he's, an, he's a great character. I'm super into him.
2: Mrs. Bruce and or Ms. Bruce and Chef Baudin flirting was everything in this episode. I loved it.
1: I did, too. I was like, I'm eating this right up. Y'all just stay in the kitchen. I want this to go back and forth. I mean, both comments really—the decorating and the chef—were really coming from the same place. Of yeah, you have a lot of money, but like you're spending it in these in these foolish or like over the top ways that we're actually kind of looking our noses looking down our noses at you because you it it goes over the line where you seem like you're acting crass almost with like your a money. child, right? Oh
2: yeah. Oh oh oh. Yeah, oh, I'm going that serious, way yes, where yes, I'm yeah.
1: like you know, there's a certain level of luxury where then people are kind of like laughing at you that you you seem inappropriate almost that's what she was trying to do but it didn't work because the food was delicious the house is beautiful like it was falling flat she just didn't really have anywhere to go with her comments you know
2: years later just to talk about ostentatious and using your money you know in a childish way for bad reasons so uh mrs astor and her nephew uh he's astor the fourth They have a falling out because he feels that his wife should actually be the Mrs. Astor, just based on inheritance and and bloodline. And so they have a whole falling out. And because they had mansions next to each other, he tore down his mansion and built the Waldorf Astoria Hotel next to his aunt's or the Mrs. Astor's house, eclipsing it in height and in grandeur. And Waldorf Astoria actually still stands today. And, you know, it is this grand edifice. And he did it solely because he had the money to do it and wanted to piss off. You know, the disaster because he was offended that she was using the title of the, uh, and instead of his wife being able to use it in society. That's what these people are doing with their money. I think the French <laughs> chef cooking delicious food with lots of butter is okay when you compare it to that. So,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: What do you think about the revelation of why George wanted this informal dinner? Because he's talking about things that you can't talk about in an office. He's essentially inviting Patrick and the other aldermen to engage in insider trading, what we would call insider trading today, buy shares. When the price of Russell Consolidated Trust are lower based on information that is not available to the public, the idea that this law is going to be passed, which will allow George to build his new railroad station, because once that news does become public, the price of the stock will skyrocket and all of the men will make a lot of money when they go to sell it, right? They're buying low and selling high. It's the goal of everyone. It's suggesting that they maybe use margin accounts, which is essentially you borrow money from a stockbroker to buy shares, so you can say double your position. Uh, so let's say I have $2,500 to buy shares. I borrow $2,500 from my stockbroker. Now I can buy $5,000 worth of shares instead of 2,500. When that price skyrockets, I only have to pay back $2,500 to my stockbroker, but maybe I make $10,000 in profit. It's margin counts. Margin accounts are actually legal. Insider trading is not legal today, but those laws wouldn't come until the 1930s. The fact that Patrick is sneaking into the coach, and this is all very, very clandestine, is still is not something that should be bandied about. I thought it was so sleazy, but I was also so into it too. Over brandy <laughs> and and over brandy and billiards, talking about these deals, I was totally into this whole plot line.
1: Oh yeah, this was smelling all of Mike like, all over the place. I was. On the edge of my seat, when I started realizing what he was doing, I was like, "Oh my God, Like this is getting really sassy and salacious, like real quick here. I loved it, and I loved that the that I a hundred percent understood what his business dealings were. And I really get why a lot of this stuff has to be happening in this social sphere and why it can't be done. In the office all the time, which again, helps me understand why it's very important that Bertha can have dinners and things like that over there, because he plans to talk about stuff you can't talk about in the office. So very good backing on why their social standing really, really does matter. So, Mike, a lot of people are going to be like, oh, my God, are they going to be in trouble for insider trading?
2: The fact that he's getting in the coach and, you know, he's he's essentially bribing the alderman to pass this law. Oh, for sure. I'm sure that was against the law. It wouldn't be insider trading as we know it today because that law wouldn't exist for another 50 years. So it's probably more manipulating the uh, or bribing. I think bribing has always been illegal. It's probably more about bribing the alderman to pass the law.
1: Which is frown face everywhere all the time.
2: Which is which I'm sure even in 1882 was illegal. What we know is New York City wouldn't come to existence for like another 20 years. So this is still very primitive society insofar as laws and organization. It's just Manhattan and the Bronx. That is New York at this point. Let's get to the bazaar because the entire charity itself, the way it comes off, starting with Bertha realizing that the bazaar has moved, the armory does fall through, which is kind of predicted several times because it's offered several times that they can use her ballroom. Everyone says it in this episode, Bertha says it, George says it, Patrick makes a plea with his wife to please use the ballroom. He kind of wants them to dump the armory at, from the outset and then switch right to the ballroom. They don't. When the armory falls through, they move to the Fifth Avenue Hotel. Bertha throws her tray. What's your take on the armory falling through?
1: As soon as they said the line about if the armory is double booked, If there was an issue with the armory, then come over here, and that was like the offer. It seemed very likely that the Russells were going to pull the strings to make there be a problem with the armory. So I am going on the assumption that they did something. They went and paid the armory. Maybe they even booked the armory and paid more. Said we'll pay more for this night, whatever they're doing those three days, and created the problem. And then when she reads it in the paper, that now we've created this problem, and they still aren't choosing the ballroom. They're going to pick a third location. I mean, she was warranted in throwing that that tray because my goodness, she's very invested in this making this work. I didn't know what they were going to do next, but I knew they were always going to have another plan. C. did you think she pulled strings because they didn't explicitly say that
2: they didn't explicitly say it? But she makes like these eyes when it first comes up in the ballroom right after dinner. Uh, That made me feel like she was going to do something to get the armory to fall through. I think the idea that they have to switch from the armory to some. Somewhere, And then not to her ballroom, even if she didn't manipulate strings was probably be enough to upset her. But I think if you think about it from the point of view that she definitely did something to make the armory fall through, spent some of her husband's money or even George went and did it himself and and booked the armory, maybe paid them more money so that they would not be able to use it for the bizarre charity Then they didn't call her after everyone, including Patrick. I mean, she's thinking Patrick Moore says that we should have used the ballroom. She thinks this is probably a done deal. They can't get out of it. It makes no sense. They're going to go spend thousands of dollars to move to this other location when I'm offering it to them for free. A charity?
1: Right, cut the profits of right. the charity you're cutting like, in you you're, oh you're, you're willfully
2: cutting into the profits of the charity just to take a dig at me she's thinking no way they're going to do that. I can't be such a leper that they're going to do that, and then she is, and they do that definitely makes sense why she is so enraged that she that she tosses that delicious looking breakfast. <laughs>
1: What did you think about how it actually resolved when we have George come through with his hundred dollar bills, paying out every table to close down and be finished?
2: I pulled the clip there because you have to listen in the back. I think that's Aurora and Anne talking. They're patting each other on the back about how well they've outdone themselves. I started the clip there because I think it makes George's uh, George's drop the mic moment here even more delicious.
5: Mrs. Morris. Good morning. Is Mr. Morris here?
4: He's hoping to
0: look in later.
5: Then he may miss it.
0: I don't understand.
5: You will. And you must be Mrs. Fane.
0: Yes, Mr. Russell. I am Aurora Fane.
5: So the pair of you decided my wife's ballroom was not good enough to raise money for your charity. Mr. Russell, there's no need... How much money do you hope to raise over the next three days?
4: I suppose I'm hoping for $30 or even $40.
5: Here's $100, on one condition. What? That everything on the stall is delivered to my house on Fifth Avenue within the hour. This is my card. Can you do it?
4: Yes, I suppose we can. It is why we're here, isn't it? I mean, that is the point. Of course.
5: (laughs) So you'll take it?
3: Thank you.
4: Very
5: generous. You will also close and dismantle your stall,
2: and he goes on to go around to every single stall, including Marion Brooks, buying them off the expected profit of thirty to forty dollars he's paying a hundred dollars that 's a massive win for this bazaar, but again, money isn't everything right they this idea this is why I loved it because this. Highlighted, bold, underlined, italicized this point that they're holding this bazaar ostensibly for the widows and the children. please hear the air quotes I'm using there. <laughs> but they're really doing it just so they could all feel so fucking good about themselves. Right? It's really not about the widows and the children, because if it was, they'd be in Bertha's ballroom doing this.
1: It's something to do. It's something that's appropriate for them to spend their time on.
2: Right. It's it's all about it's really all about them and 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 so they can look around at each other. Oh, if we've really outdone ourselves! Oh, you? I <laughs> shan't say we have. Oh, you shan't. Oh, you shall. You know, and so. I want to be able to go around places and say that things are well and truly open. I think this is something that I'm going to start doing. I'm going to be at Dunkin' Donuts at 4 a.m. and be like, this Dunkin' Donuts is well and truly open. Because I was really into Mrs. Astor opening up the bazaar. That was really I, I I think it's something I'm going to start doing. Guys, you may hear about a guy in New York doing, <laughs> pronouncing things well and truly open. That's me. I'm super into it. But – he reveals the lie, the duplicitous lie of this thing so wonderfully. The elevated voice. I mean, he's standing in front of them and he is shouting my wife's you know, ballroom was not good. You know, it's there's nothing subtle here. And he's just like paint varnish stripping away all of their bullshit. And I was I was standing up doing the Arsenio Hall. Like, <laughs> you know, like the dog pound like cheer from like the night. Like I was so into this scene because these people are fucking horrible. And I want all of their <laughs> nonsense and bullshit to be stripped away and revealed. When Marion starts calling him Sherman to Larry. Yes. <laughs> Yes, I, she because it's not just one. She says it, I think, two or three times. Oh, she does. Uh, I loved it. I was like, it's exactly right. He is Sherman marching, and and except for burning fields, he is burning down the bizarre patriarchy or matriarchy uh, of this nonsense. You know, I, I loved it. I loved it. Loved it. Loved it.
1: I, and you know what I'm going to take issue with your nonsense comment. Quit it. This is what women were allowed to do during this time. This is what w- was considered an appropriate use of their time. So uh,
2: Can I stop you though? Can I stop you yes. because because you are a charitable woman. I know I, in, <laughs> I, I, know in I know in I know in fact you run events exactly like yes, this. Yes
1: I have. And that's why when you said nonsense I'm like you
2: Caroline do you run the charity so that you and your friends can pat each other on the back and say you did such fucking great work? Or yeah. do you run the charity events you do because you actually, in fact, want to help them things that you are running, raising money for?
1: A thousand percent. It's about raising money. And I and That's I go through it. That's the I difference. <laughs> That's you the difference. bird. Okay, so I here's the deal. Having run events exactly like this, there were several things that I found super delicious that other people may not even realize. When he says the part about you have to close down your table, there is a whole thing when you run these type of events where you say the vendor cannot close their table because people will sell out on the first day, but it's a three-day thing. And so then they close it down, and what happens is your event looks anemic by like day three because people have sold out. So you put these things in there. So they were so clever as to like put in those little jabs of like, and anyone who refuses my money, let's say that he was assuming maybe somebody, someone here might refuse my money. I'm going to make you look like the cheese stands alone because I'm going to make these other women close their tables. And that is like an extra slight that is going to fly by many people's heads. Um, but it's so super mean to do to I, the event. I, I got
2: the idea of it, by making it close down, it was going to make it look like it was a poorly attended affair because it was supposed to last right. for three days. Super but, anemic, like yes. looking
1: sad, like you, like you couldn't get people together to actually throw the event.
2: Uh, so good. So good. And and it's so really, so, really so wicked. let's be clear. I'm not saying that the running charity events are nonsense. I have spent a lot of my free time over the last 10 years doing charity events. I, I've, I've formed a bunch of 501c3s. Oh, I,
1: right. I, you're I, but, fantastic. We but got no, no, no. it. I'm
2: just saying like charity for because you're raising money for charity is the most noble of things. That's not what this event is about. It's not. It's not. It is nonsense because it's not about the war widows and the and the orphans. It's absolutely not about that. It's about slighting the Bertha Russells of the world and being able to say, "Man, we've done really great work here today." Yeah. Oh, did we could, say- could we have saved $10,000 that could have gone to little Joey the orphan? I oh, guess, but fuck Bertha.
0: <laughs>
1: Okay, I'm going to say these women are fantastic multitaskers, and we're all right. They are throwing a charity event. They are raising money. They're not being as efficient and effective as they could be, and they are patting themselves on the back, so they're just multitasking at this point. Mike.
2: Yeah, it's like one of those charities, though, where the CEO makes a billion dollars, and the charity is in the red. That's how yes. they're running this charity event.
1: So. <laughs> I can see you're very upset. You're, like, sweating over there. I can see you. Well, because
2: because I, I'm not upset about it. I loved it because in, in one felt swoop, he more than doubled the the possible profit of this bizarre and also revealed that in fact, it's not about the money at all. It's about them just feeling good about themselves. He proved he proved them right that it really isn't money, isn't everything.
1: I'm going to point you out to a different example here, and maybe, maybe this will make some sense. Okay. In Gilmore Girls, they have an event, the Knitathon, and Christopher, who's an outsider to the town and newly rich, comes in on the scene and says like, oh, how much money did you guys want to raise? And they tell him a number and he just pays it out and they all look at each other and they're like they had all been gathering their yarn and they had been planning this whole day where they were going to eat lunch together and talk and have these things and he's like yeah you know here's all the money you wanted to raise like right first thing in the morning and they all like look at each other and they're like i guess we go home like no one in the town was happy that the event was closed down so i'm just saying that there's something about the way that he handled this that isn't always looked at like ha 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 now the the orphans get the money you got what you wanted to do but there's something about like attending fairs and school events and things that it creates the culture and the things that are going on in the town and yeah rich people can go around and just throw money and give it to it and you could close them all down but not everyone's going to be appreciative of that because people were going to come and shop that bazaar that now you just shut down so there's something kind of extra layered there that I'd like to see. I don't know that they'll get any blowback, but he's insulting them on other levels too because now the town itself doesn't have an event to go to. I hope that that's making sense.
2: It absolutely makes sense, but I would only say George and Patty, you know, ice delivery men and and his wife are not going to go to this bazaar. This bazaar is not for them. It's not for the people of of Star, stars hollow no matter your income class to you know the to pop in and buy a pair of knit mittens
1: it was a knitathon they were getting paid per skein god
2: This is for high society by high society. This wasn't a bizarre – people because you wouldn't be able to afford it. Jesus, we're talking about Mrs. Bauer getting the shit kicked out of her for a $50 three-card Monty gambling in debt. People (laughs) – Mrs. Bauer can't come here and hang out you know and buy Marion's silk handkerchiefs like that's not for them so that that's the only buttons i have I, to I got,
1: you, I got you i got you i'm you know I get it. I'm just saying they could be offending more people than they even realize. A
2: hundred percent. A hundred percent. And this is what they had planned to do for the next three days. Uh, uh, for sure, the Anne Morrises and the Aurora Fanes of the world were very upset because this is what we had planned for the day. You know who was not upset really at all and, in fact, was thankful for having I gotten do back her know day? know
1: who. It's Mrs. Astor. When she was like, well, burp, I get to go home.
2: <laughs> right. Let's talk about Mrs. Astor here because this is the first time we really get to see her in action patrick drops a little bit of prophecy in the beginning of this episode when he says mrs astor understands how the world works she he says she understands how the world works and what he means there i think is she understands how business works so when george you know spends his thousand dollars in a in a few seconds you know she says this uh to to ann and Aurora. goodbye my dear you're not going there's nothing to
0: stay for the lion has sprawled
2: and then at the very end in talking to his daughter Carrie and talking to her daughter Carrie about why she's home so early and where she's saying that she's actually relieved that she gets to have an afternoon unexpected uh, without any kind of social appointments she says this
0: hello we're back very early I thought we were meeting at Mrs. Morris's bazaar the bazaar is over my dear closed and finished What? I thought it was to last three days. So it was. But a man called George Russell decided otherwise. What was he like? Well, yesterday I would have said he was nobody. nobody. But today, I'm obliged to concede that he is someone to be reckoned with. And befriended? Oh, no. Not yet, at any rate. But we will hear of him again.
2: Not yet at any rate. The cracks are already in there. The cracks keeping the rustles out of society are already forming based on today's events.
1: I like you saying that because that's how we described it in the last episode when Marion actually came to their open house. I described that as a crack, that that they were not going to be able to act as like a demolition, uh, you know, wrecking ball in this situation. They were going to have to just make continuous cracks in the in the facade here and somehow finally, you know, have the wall crumble. So perfection. This is just another crack in the wall.
2: And one of the ladies saying, just to back up to the bazaar, because I think it, I think it has even more impact after you listen to Mrs. Astor talk to her daughter about it. You know, oh, no, no, not yet, but you know, at least not yet at any rate, but we'll definitely be hearing from him soon. Backing it up five minutes, uh, one of the women says to Bertha as George continues paying off the ladies and shutting down stalls, you know, this sort of stunt won't impress anyone. And without missing a beat, Bertha, who has the cat that ate the canariest grin on her face the entire time. At first, I was curious if she was going to be embarrassed, but then clearly, no. She was, she was delighted that her husband was doing this on her behalf. She says, my dear, this sort of stunt impresses everyone. And very clearly impressed Mrs. Astor, reluctantly maybe, but very clearly impressed her.
1: I mean, there are being disruptors on the level that gets her attention and affects her day. That's big doings.
2: Who likes uh, big and bold moves? Everybody. <laughs> uh, I want to I give a little hat tip to the show because there's a great little detail at the end of the episode as Mrs. Astor ascends her well-appointed staircase to her room or one of her rooms, I'm sure. The camera flashes up and there's this ginormous portrait of her hanging on the wall mrs astor had a portrait done in 1890 by an artist named carolus duran it was painted in paris it's actually currently held by the the met in the city this portrait of mrs astor used to hang in her ballroom and she was such a fucking boss she would receive her guests standing underneath the giant portrait of herself so when you came (laughs) to pay your respects to Mrs. Astor you had to do it while giant portrait Mrs. Astor looked down upon you
1: that's some baller moves man fucking
2: baller moves (laughs) Mrs. Astor knew how to ball like the best of them though so I thought this I mean this portrait I I couldn't find that this portrait was a reproduction of, of a real one but in 1890 is the one that was famously the one she would entertain under the Mrs. Astor is always there, whether she's actually there or not.
1: You know, I want to point out that she says the lion has roared, right? Mm-hmm. Of the lion, and the lionesses who, are the hunters and who are the actual more dangerous ones
2: the lionesses,
1: rip it out lionesses. so there's something about that comparison that makes me actually think that that yes most people would think oh the lion this big manly lion right but <laughs> she is not in any way by comparing the entire group here to lions they are not in any way acting as if they're less powerful than he is fascinating choice this
2: show is so stacked with powerful women it is truly impressive the female power brought to bear in this series it it has to be acknowledged and applauded and talked about it's it's just it's just outstanding it's women across the age lines from Thaisa Farmiga playing Gladys all the way up to, um, you know, uh, Christine Baranski and and Cynthia Nixon and and Donna Murphy playing the elder states ladies of the series. Audra McDonald playing, uh, you know, uh, Peggy's mother, Dorothy. A, a, a wide swath of powerful and impressive women in front of the camera and behind it. I,
1: I like how much that the men seem to be doing their bidding and pleading with them because that's not the way these stories are normally told. We discussed this last week about how George could have come in, blown his Captain Von Trapp whistle and everyone would have run around. But that's not what's happening. George is coming and and consoling. Patrick is pleading with, with his wife to please handle it in a different way. The men are not who we care about and are not the ones making it all happen.
2: Let's shift from the Russells and the Bazaar uh, business. Let's move over to the Van Ryn and Brooks House. Because while this episode had a ton of juicy Russell-related information, there were a lot of plot movements over uh, in the Van ryn russell house. Let's start with a plot line that I'm not sure why they introduced it. I, I, I have ideas. I'm not really cu- – I'm curious as to where it's going to go or what the point of it is. Mrs. Bauer – Episode begins with her really getting roughed up by a big heavy. She has a $50 gambling debt. It seems that she's playing three card Monty or some other kind of street card game. What's the point of this plot line?
1: It created a ball rolling that had a lot of conversations and a lot of relationships revealed. Peggy finds out, Peggy tells Marion, Marion tells Oscar, Oscar ends up telling Ada, and Ada goes and talks to Marion, and they form a different relationship. I'm looking at it more like it's not so much what's going on on with the help per se, it's the reactions of each person down the line and then how that all affects their relationships and kind of spins it to the next level. We learn a lot about Oscar. I know everything about Oscar and and Ada's relationship now. I mean, he spilled the beans right away to her. I didn't expect that. I would have thought he was going to be this like, you know, kind of, I don't know, like Eddie Haskell-ish that would never tell her what was going on, but now it turns out, no, he, he did tell. So there's a lot there. Also, we know that Ada has Money. that that wasn't really very clear that she could just pop off some money over to her and it wasn't any big deal she wasn't going to have to get agnes's okay on that i think it was a mechanism to reveal all of that whether or not more happens with her in terms of like some sort of actual danger to her that i think will only uh serve to se- to show how agnes and ada and everyone deals with it i don't know that it, the actual problem itself is that important
2: peggy now has a defender in mrs Bauer with mrs armstrong continuing to play detective and look for chinks in the armor of peggy and get her out of the house right this is all stuff established in the first episode mrs armstrong uh and bridget initially are very anti-peggy coming into the house this idea that they're she's going to take jobs that i guess they think belong to them now mrs bauer she actually says leave her alone she actually cut she actually steps up to mrs armstrong and defends peggy which is interesting also you have peggy talking to bridget right because mrs bauer is so embarrassed she can't admit to bridget what happened she leaves it to peggy to do so that's even bridging some of that divide between young bridget and Peggy. So this plotline had I think the unforeseen or maybe maybe expected consequence of giving her allies downstairs against Mrs. Armstrong's continued reluctance to her being there.
1: Yeah, I 100% agree with you. I think I'm seeing a good pattern here with the writing. It might not be so important what the little initial ball rolling is. Like, I'll give the, the parallel example of having Marion's ticket be stolen on the on the train platform. It's not so important that it got stolen. What's important is that that created the the relationship between her and Peggy, which then created the, the relationship between Peggy and Agnes. Like, it's all about that. And so I don't know that we ever need to worry about about what that initial ball rolling is as much as it seems to me that that's how the writing works in this show. And I'm only on Upset 2, but that's my guess.
2: This is a question, Mark, that we can't really answer, but I'm curious what your feeling is about Peggy and her myster- mysterious need for a lawyer. And and factually, I think it's interesting because we talked about a little bit about pe- whether Peggy or whether Peggy's parents, the Scots, Dorothy and her as a yet unseen father, have money. Now, Peggy says she can't use a colored lawyer. That's her, her language, um, because any lawyer in, I guess, seems like the Northeast is going to get back to her father. That indicates that her father is some kind of man of means and or of note. If any lawyer is going to report back to him, he's someone worth reporting back to. I think that's an interesting breadcrumb for the show to drop. But even more tantalizing is what is this mystery? Does it have something to do with her writing? Does it have something to do with money and finances? Any idea on what's picking up there and anything about this plot that uh, intrigued you?
1: I am curious because Peggy seems definitely like this is something that is going to motivate her, drive her to be making different connections and to and to figure it out. Obviously, that's something that both Agnes and her mother say. Like, we're not going to get in the middle of this, but you need to figure this out. Whatever's going on here, you need to figure it out. So, I'm interested. They've they've piqued my interest, and I'm curious about how exactly she's going to deal with it. I'm I'm thinking that within her own society. Information would get back to her, you know, through different means, maybe or get back to her father through different means, probably going to church or something like that. Information would be passed along. So it's not necessarily that they are people of means. But I do think that her mother seemed that way when she was sitting there and she had money to give her and all those things. I am getting that vibe. I don't know if it will matter exactly what the issue is so much as it's that it causes a problem in the family and it is something that she has to deal with and is going to rope the lawyer in to the storyline with Peggy and Marion, creating probably a lot more of these clandestine meetings, I'm guessing. What do you think? Is there something like really exciting and deep there or is it going to be just a mechanism for relationships?
2: I I think it's going to be something interesting. I think it's going to be something about branching out of her own independence beyond just her father finding out in a general sense is something maybe adding extra motivation that she wouldn't if it was a really trivial matter. Yes, maybe she wouldn't want her father to find out. But there's always a cost benefit analysis to everything we do. How hard are you going to look for a lawyer outside of your family circle if it was just something really super trivial? and my guess is because freedom and independence from her family together with her career ambitions seem to be her prime motivators right now i really feel strongly that it's going to turn out that her family is going to be of some significant which again is is the 1800s it's 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 reconstruction era it's 1880s racism is still a thing classism is still a thing i think a wealthy black family from brooklyn is going to be an interesting twist and wrinkle for this show that is otherwise very white and very well to do i think the show is building to an interesting storyline that we probably don't get a lot of on television there was another further nice little development in the agnes and peggy storyline this week right remember last week peggy gets hired as her secretary as agnes's secretary there's some downstairs talk about whether or not she is quote unquote a secretary or is in fact a secretary but you have this from the agnes wit and wisdom file uh that i wanted to play
3: Tomorrow, I want you to go through these. Letters from assorted presidents, secretaries of state, artists in need of a patron, that sort of thing.
4: How interesting. Hmm.
3: If only Mr. Oscar agreed with you.
4: I do know you've taken a chance on me, Mrs.
3: Van Ryn, and I appreciate it. Life has taught me one thing, Miss Scott. If you don't want to be disappointed, only help those who help themselves. And now I'm going to bed.
2: A lot of Agnes ending conversations by sending people to bed or going to bed herself. I like that about her. I find I find bed to be a very definitive end to the night.
1: No more arguing. It's nighttime.
2: We can continue this in the morning. I am am done with this conversation for now. I need to go to bed. To bed, I said so. Not to get Dr. Susie in. I love that. I love this idea of, you know, to avoid disappointments, I help those who help themselves. It's smart. It's good wisdom. The ants have good wisdom.
1: They do. I appreciate many of the lines that Agnes said, and a lot was revealed about her through these like individual lines. I know you've got more in your hopper there. I,
2: I do. I have a, I've started a new segment we're going to call here. Agnes's Wit and Wisdom. It's going to be because she says so many funny things or scathing things that don't necessarily, you know, aren't germane to specific plot points. But I just enjoy them so much. So I am carving them out. So you mentioned Oscar. And I uh, and speaking of Agnes's Wit and Wisdom file, there was a great exchange between Oscar and Agnes. I want to play the clip. But then I want to talk about Oscar because it, this clip rubbed me a little bit the wrong way.
3: New York is a collection of villages, my dear. We know the people who live in our own village.
4: But not the ones who don't.
3: The Russells live in your
5: village, Mama. I could throw a stone from here and break their windows.
3: Don't tease me. I'm not. I'm stating facts. I'm not concerned with facts. Not if they interfere with my beliefs. I give you prejudice in a nutshell. No, oh, stop talking to yourself and ring the bell. I'm going up to change. I doubt it, Mama. I'd say you will come down again without having changed at all.
1: Boon. <laughs> <laughs> he
2: gets he gets that i i couldn't I, I could i didn't even try that hard but i couldn't get a, a ada's little <laughs> like she was so amused by it oscar is very winky and very performative for his aunt uh, uh, ada and for marion
1: oh for everyone i think that's just like his whole mo i found it
2: very off-putting in this episode Listen, I don't want to talk smack about anyone, but I don't like I'm not a particular fan of Jimmy Fallon and his comedy, especially his night show hosting duties, because he's always winking and always like, see what I did there? See what I did there? And very performative. Mm. I don't like that. I find that very insincere because you're not you're 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 trying to make me laugh too hard or you're trying to show me how clever you are. Oscar feels like he's trying very hard to show everyone how clever and amusing he is. Just be clever and amusing, and if you are, I'll understand it. I don't need you <laughs> looking at the camera and winking for me so far, I'd actually found him very funny, just as Gladys says that she did
1: that's that's exactly why I was so surprised that he actually told Ada what was going on and that he was going to give the fifty dollars and all that kind of stuff like if you were just going to be funny and clever or make deals or whatever, then keep it to your own self. Like he's got loose lips, you know, and I didn't realize that until all that. And then, and then I'm agreeing with you wholeheartedly. Like, Oh, you're just somebody who's a hundred percent going to be like, look what I did.
2: Yeah, always, it always. I mean, if you're standing next to him, your your ribs are going to be sore because he's always going to be poking you with his elbow. See what I did there? See what I did there? As relates to the Ada thing, I don't know how much is it that he has loose lips or that Ada has the same relationship with Oscar as she's for, as she's fermenting fermenting with. Marion, this fairy godmother, I'm the one you could speak to. Marion says, uh, you know, refers to Oscar as a fortune hunter and then says, can I even say that to you? And Ada says, you could say it to me. She's building this very safe space vibe. I mean, sh- the way she says, I realized that there was something going on between you and Oscar. So after dinner, I cornered him and he gave it up immediately. She also has like a little bit of like the bare bulb interrogation aspect to her. But I think that is... Probably a result of a lifetime of being the safe space, right? It works both ways. When you have always been the one you can tell to, I think it's easier to get the good information out of also.
1: I, I can see that. Yeah. And that definitely I feel like Oscar, you know, had Ada as the soft place to fall between him and between her and his mother.
2: Agnes has to be a long day as a mom. Growing yeah, up. I would yeah.
1: run to Ada every time. So, yeah, I see that they could have a good relationship where he'd share info.
2: Let's talk about playing fairy godmother to Marion. What's your take with this whole cut? Ada comes up and she says that she will, in fact, pay the $50, which dashes Oscar's hopes of getting the extortion lunch sitting next to Gladys out of Marion come to me next time this advice of come to me next time and then also expounding on it and really opening herself up saying that she had a different growing up she had a different experience with henry marion's father growing up than agnes did and the resulting of henry leaving them penniless affected her in a different way than it affected agnes so in fact she did not hate henry in the same way agnes does very vulnerable but at the same time very much creating a safe space for marion to her own vulnerability extent.
1: It was finally a great opportunity for the two of them to bond a little bit and have this little thing between them, this little secret that always helps people bond is when you have something that you're working on together. And it seemed like it was the first time that Marion was understanding that Ada is not just like the total tittering, laughing kind of side bubblehead character, mm. but that she, she was generous and gracious and understanding and compassionate in a way that, you know, she's not going to get that from Agnes. So I, I think she finally when she said, I love you and I mean that and everything, I, I, that was all very big in terms of their development as as characters together. Rose Nyland with a little
2: bit of Sophia in her. <laughs> yes. Ada seems to continue to defy Agnes's wishes when it comes to Marion and love. Even in this scene, she says she, she's encouraging, continues to encourage Marion to seek love, whether it's with Larry or in this case uh, with Mr. Rakes, the lawyer. Agnes has now told her she, Agnes even says, do I have to have a conversation with you? Like she scolds her like a child down in the drawing room. Ada seems undeterred. She is very much on this, this tunnel vision track of find love. Is that rubber going to hit the road when it comes to Agnes? Have we seen the last conversation between Agnes and Ada on this topic, do you think?
1: No, oh, no. I think this might be like until Marion is walking down the aisle, this is going to be a constant conflict between them is the right word. You said it. It's going to be something that, you know, she's she has to hold out a little bit of the optimism and the and the hope for love and affection and all that stuff. Whereas Agnes has to hold her line of like, you've got to be practical and we've got to keep this family on the right track. They both make good points. I, I don't I don't begrudge either of them what the points are it will be fascinating to see how marion rectifies those two and kind of figures out like what do i do with the two with the two ideas
2: Marion has pegged Oscar as being a fortune hunter. That's a great phrase she uses. You agree with that assessment from what we've seen or is it more complicated than that? Is it fortune hunter, high libido and covering uh, the homosexual, the, the gay a- aspect that we learned about last week or bisexual, uh, you know, orientation from last week? What's what's your take? What, what, what are your bones saying about Oscar?
1: He he is the counterpart to Marion in terms of like keeping the family in any money. I mean, he, they are the same level. You know, they are the ones who can bring it to the next, you know, station of, of their class here. I well,
2: guess. he's in a bit, bit of a better right because we learn. Oh, he,
1: yeah. He's he's gonna got, get all of Agnes. He, he's getting the Van Ryn
2: money and Marion is getting a none of it, which was they say kind of in passing. But I think it's a huge info drop. Uh, which I, I I assume that she would get some of that inheritance, but to learn that she's going to get zero of that inheritance, really interesting. I, I think that really changes the game for Marion, which Marion maybe doesn't even realize is actually what the rules are. Marion may not understand the rules of the game she is playing.
1: Uh, may not. May not. <laughs> Empty Vessel doesn't know the rules, doesn't get where she's going to end up. She didn't know what was going on in her own household. How could she possibly know what's going on outside the doors? Could
2: you imagine, I wonder if at some point off camera, if she asked Ada or Agnes if the house they're living in is rented. Uh. That, that, <laughs> not, now she's so scarred by her father's lies that she's just, she gonna start asking I'd like everyone, to see the deed. Is, is, are you sending rent checks? What if she
1: started asking everyone? She's like, asked the Russells, like, do you, Gladys, do you know if your house is rented by yeah. any chance?
2: <laughs> is it possible George is renting this and lying to you?
1: <laughs> that would be super funny. But, you know, to answer your question fully, I mean, I, I really think that, that Oscar has a lot of... Issues That he is going to have to face. You're right that his sexuality is not going to be acceptable to his mother's most certainly. So he's going to have to marry someone and have that that front up. But additionally, the money has to be there in order for everybody to keep going here in the in the way that they want to. Everybody's got to marry money.
2: Just a little a little historical fact here. So we learn that he's going to lunch, and actually Larry ends up at the same lunch uh, with an Ogden Goelet. Ogden Goelet was actually, in fact, a real person. Him and his wife were part of the 400. He was an American heir, a businessman, a yachtsman. Yachtsman is one of his professions. <laughs> um, he was from New York City. Uh, him and his wife, they built Ochre Court in Newport, Rhode Island, so they even check that off. They were a real estate family. He was he was basically an heir uh, professionally. It was actually his brother and his uncles who had really built the real estate fortune. A member of the Knickerbocker Club and the Union Club, two places that we actually get referenced in this episode because they're having lunch at the Union. And we learn that Larry picks... That Oscar swings by to pick up Larry to go to dinner at the Knickerbocker. That's where Gladys runs into Oscar and finds him so <laughs> amusing. <laughs> so, uh, so nice little again, nice little use of histor- real historical people kind of fill out the world with what these people are interacting with. Mrs. Chamberlain speaks Caroline. I think this is one of the last topics really in this episode. Is we finally get Gene Triplehorn uh, saying some lines at the bazaar. What was your impression here? She knows Marion. She knows who Marion is. She knows that Marion is going to pay a price for talking to her for as long as she is. And in fact, Marion does get yelled at by her aunt for speaking to Mrs. Chamberlain. What, what was your entire impression of that scene?
1: I am more interested to find out what Mrs. Chamberlain did to be so ostracized and yet still be hanging around more than I care about what Peggy's deal is with the lawyer. So they've managed to do a better job of having me be like, what is going on with this woman? And and how why is she even allowed to hang around at? all oh, why does she want to at this point? I am very curious about Mrs. Chamberlain. I also think she's a little bit of a cautionary tale. That somehow a little Scarlet there are A-action. things. Yeah, there are things you can do to stay in the group and be shunned. Like you can, like Bertha can think that there's either in or out, but you can be in. And on the outs.
2: Well, I, my impression is that Mrs. Chamberlain is Bertha. We'll take her money, but we're not putting her on any of our boards.
1: She's invited, though, and she comes. So, as Bertha's is Bertha. Not... Bertha was nah, invited. She was but... invited
2: to the charity lunch.
1: Mm, the, the well, that's where they in... they
2: saw Mrs. Chamberlain, but she wasn't asked to be on that planning event board.
1: She's out, though. Bertha is out. Mrs. Chamberlain still gets to come around, but she is on the outs.
2: Here's the quote from Agnes. Mrs. Chamberlain has things, terrible things in her past. Her money is tainted. That is strong words, no matter what the century, no matter what the decade. Tainted is a very specific word and a very strong word that to use. That's good. It's yeah. excellent. There are a bunch of more historical facts. I think I'm just going to put them all up on the Facebook group. But I will say the Veterans Room at the Armory that they're referring to, the armory that they're supposed to uh, have the ball in originally, the charity bazaar in originally, is actually still in operation today. That armory, you can actually go visit. It's the Park Avenue Armory. Uh, the Veterans Room room was in fact renovated in 1881 by a group of people including Stamford White which uh, Bertha mentions in passing during the dinner this is an ostentatious room it is maybe the most gilded age kind of gilded age room i've ever seen I'll have a picture of the what it looks like today because it actually just went through another uh, renovation recently uh, I'll put a picture of it up on our Facebook group go check it out. It's a fascinating little story the the armory itself it was called the silk stocking armory Caroline because most of because armories were you know, places where, you know, guards with national guards would like assemble. But it was a place where munitions were kept. That's why there are armories. So there was called the Silk Stocking Armory because most of the members that made it up were from high society. So these were these were men who were not necessarily going to be going to fight in the trenches of any possible war, but traded the armory more maybe as like a place to lunch than anything else.
1: Sounds like it was a clubhouse.
2: Yes. And the veterans room was the center of it where they were supposed to have this event. It's, it's quite the room. So definitely go check it out on our Facebook group.
1: Okay, Mike, well, we're two episodes in to this series, and they've been dense episodes with a lot of information going. What would you say is your number one question moving into episode three?
2: I I really want to know more about this Peggy. Peggy is fascinating to me. I think it's a credit to Denia Benton. I think she's doing such a good job with the role. I'm really interested to see what the storyline is and learning what her place in the larger story is going to be. But I also really want to see what the business uh, side turns into, you know, the Penn Station was built by a robber baron railroad tycoon. But that doesn't open until the early 20th, uh, 20th century Uh, central Grand Central Station or Grand Central Terminal was the actual name as we know it today isn't in existence yet. There's the Grand Central Depot that's in New York at this point. So I'm curious what they're basing this new railroad on. I want to see how this all comes out. I'm curious to see if it blows up in Georgia's face or if, in fact, it is the key to the kingdom that eventually actually lets them in because the guy who builds a railroad station is going to be hard to continue to ignore from high society. My own interests, I'm very interested in the business side of it, too.
1: Mrs. Chamberlain, I want to know what's going on with her. I want to hear about this tainted money, what she did. And I really do think she's going to be playing the secret mentor for Marion, you know, is going to be feeding her information and showing her another side that is going to continue to be, I think, pretty riveting. I'm curious about what she's going to bring to the table.
2: I really liked, after this episode, really liked your secret mentor prediction because she says, I wish you would call on me. Mm -hmm. And then she says, and then she realizes that the answer watching, she says, I'm sorry, I, I apologize, you're going to pay some kind of price for this conversation. The invitation has been laid and marion just needs an invitation for her to go track something down so really interesting how miss chamberlain seemed to be zeroed in on marion right she was giving her eyes making eyes at her
1: oh man she's fresh meat not oh. in a sexual
2: way but she was i mean at the at the bizarre at the charity event last week miss chamberlain kept looking up at her specifically maybe it's that she knows something about her connection and the van ryan's or the brooks you know she has got information that marion needs to know desperately this might was my feeling
1: I'm very much looking forward to episode three. This is Caroline.
2: And this is Mike. Guys, thank you so much for listening to New Money, Old Rules, the Gilded Age podcast. Please head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe. And while you're there, if you could leave us a five-star rating, that would be fantastic because you know what? I'm sitting over here and I'm holding back the tide of the Bulgarians, just like King Canute, until you guys leave us a five-star review.
3: While well, I am struggling trying to hold back the tide of Bulgarians that threatens to engulf us, I feel like King Canute.
1: Thanks for listening.
2: Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open and we'd love to hear from you.